Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. I am thrilled today to have Dan Pink, who is the author of six provocative books, including his newest, When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. His other books include the long-running New York Times bestseller, A Whole New Mind, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Drive and to Sell as Human. Each have been translated into 37 languages, so everybody's reading it, which is great. For the last six years, Thinkers 50 has named him alongside Michael Porter, Clayton Christensen, Roger Martin, and Tom Peters as one of the top 15 business thinkers in the world. Pink's TED Talk on the science of motivation is one of the 10 most watched TED Talks of all time with more than 19 million views. I love that TED Talk, by the way. Welcome, Dan, to the podcast. Tiffany, thanks for having me. Good to be with you again. Yes, you know, it's a, it's a, wonderful, you know, long distance love affair Dan and I have. He wrote the book. He wrote the book to sell as human. And I said, I got to know this guy. Right. So uh, we met at an event a number of years ago and, and you've just been fantastic to me over my career. So it's really a pleasure and an honor to have you here today with me. Well, I'm glad to be here. So I like to start something out uh, on my podcast called Bullish and Bearish. Okay. Nothing too painful, I hope, okay. but it's just a couple of questions and then uh, try to pin you down on one or the other. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right. I'm actually Mich- bearish on the idea, but I'm, I'm bullish on, on my willingness to try. I think they'll be p- less painful okay. than you might think. All right. All right. Ready? Okay. The first one. Machines will be able to write speeches used by politicians. Bullish or bearish? Uh, I would say I'm bearish about that. So there's a reason I asked that question. For those of you who don't know, Dan was the chief speechwriter to uh, our vice president, Al Gore, from 95 to 97. So I thought I'd get him a little, you know, hey. Yeah. What do you think? And the reason I, the reason I'm bearish about that is because a lot of speeches and speech giving um, that you can certainly there certainly be a machine, a, a piece of software that will be able to craft sentences. But one of the things about speeches, particularly political speeches, is that there are there's so many unspoken, nuanced things that are really uh, I think a little more complicated, a little bit too complicated for a machine to. Uh, to, to, to knock out. Now, I could be wrong. Um, and truth is, most political speeches aren't very good. They could have been written by machines, but I, I'm going <laughs> to stick it with Farish on that one. All right. All right. Fair enough. All right. The next one. And I, and I pulled this from one of your recent tweets. Uh-oh. Women, women make better money managers than men. Bullish. <laughs> I, ha- I had to, I, I read that and I said, oh my God, I'm keeping that one. But you I'm know what? You see a lot of research on this. You see a lot of research on this, Tiffany. That was actually a pretty interesting study of, of hedge fund managers showing this really, uh, this, this correlation between um, measures of testosterone and poor performance. And the poor performance basically came from excessive risk taking. You also see this in some research on. Uh, forget about sort of money management, but just talking about individual investor behavior, that women are much more likely to do the research. Women are more likely to make prudent investments. Women are more likely, and I think this is true throughout many, many domains, uh, to be more comfortable admitting what they don't know. So bullish on women as investment managers. 
All right, great. And the and the and the last one is uh, a little counterintuitive when I first mm -hmm. saw this from you. So drink a cup of coffee and then take a nap. Super bullish. bullish <laughs> All right. As bullish as I could be. If there's like a <laughs> bullish meter, I'm at the top of it. All right. So I'm going to use that bullish at the top of the bullish meter uh, to to start talking about your new book when. Uh, Maybe you can give us kind of the background into how you landed on this subject and topic, and then maybe we'll get back to the uh, cup of coffee and take a nap. Sure. I mean, I landed on this. This is a book about timing, and I landed on it because, um, you know, for really kind of self-absorbed reasons, I was making all kinds of when decisions, timing decisions in my own life. Uh, you, know, you know, when should I do certain kinds of work? When should I exercise during the day? When should I start a project? When should I quit a project? When should I abandon a project that isn't working? And I was making the decisions in a really haphazard way. I thought I could make it in a better way. I looked around for some guidance. It didn't exist. And then, I, then I, that got me curious about like, well, hmm, why doesn't that exist? So I looked at some of the research and that brought me down this rabbit hole of incredible research from many, many domains uh, that were all these scholars and fields from economics to anthropology, to social psychology, to chronobiology, to anesthesiology, to molecular biology, I mean, just all these different fields asking very similar questions about timing. And I said, wow, this is totally interesting. Uh, I would love to read this book. And since it didn't exist, I decided to write it. Yeah. And I, and I found it fascinating for all kinds of reasons, right? I had uh, Roger Martin on the podcast as well, and he talks about choices, right? It's all a series of choices. Yeah. And so yeah. if you combine that thought, right, it's a combination sure. of not only the choice, but when you make the choice. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that's actually a key point, Tiffany, because, you know, one of the sort of the, my big takeaways, sort of conceptual takeaways from this line of research is that is how um, how much we disregard these questions of when we are very intentional about questions of what and what we're going to do. We're pretty intentional about who we're going to do it with and even how we're going to do it. But when it comes to questions of when we're going to do things from everything from when in the day should I uh, do, you know, my heads down analytic work to when should I take a break, to when should we schedule that meeting, to more broadly, you know, what, what's, when is the right time to launch this new uh, product? Oh, we don't take those questions that seriously. Uh, we tend to, especially in terms of the day-to-day -day work, we tend to think of questions of when as administrative questions, questions about you know, who's available, logistical questions, and they're not, they're, they're, you know, and Roger knows this as a, you know, one of the leading strategy thinkers of our time, uh, uh, when is a strategic question. Yeah. And if you almost think of it in a cascade, it's sort of like, you know, uh, Simon Sinek's book, start with why, and then your book focus on when, and then Dove's book on how <laughs> Like right. you could just stack those three up and it's kind of like, see no evil, hear no evil. Right. Do no evil right. Right? right. And I, I think I'll do my thing. My, I think my next book will be where there you go. You know, hash the idea on the what's next podcast. That's although, great. Although if this trend, if this trend continues, I think the next book is going to be called "Huh." <laughs> okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna write one of the blurbs on the back of the book and go. That summed it all up for me. Huh? Like, yeah. What was that all about? Well, I, I and I and I think you just said something that was really fascinating. That when we think of uh, just the topic of when, um, it isn't so much about time of day. 
as much it is maybe when in the cycle of a business, you know, like, well, we're a startup. So this is what we do when we're a startup or when we're an established company versus saying, well, hold on, you know, from the moment, what time do you wake up? You know, when you work out, when you eat, when you have surgery, like all of those things, correct? Absolutely right. I'm so, so some of it is, it's a great question. It's a really important question because when we think about time, um, one of the things that I discovered, I hadn't really been aware of it, is that a lot of the things that we think are natural units of time, you know, a second, uh, an hour, a week, they're completely made up. Um, they have no physical, biological significance. Uh, they're things that we as human beings made up to try to fence in this very elusive notion of time. However, the day is actually a real thing because we're on a planet that turns every 24 hours. So the day has a profound effect on our, uh, on our mood and our performance. And yet we're also, so, so the day is significant, but also more broadly, we're always moving through time. And so, you know, our lives are, you know, our lives are episodic. We live our lives as a series of episodes in many ways. If you think about a career as a series of episodes or a project as a series of episodes, any kind of personal relationship as a series of episodes and episodes have beginnings, they have middles, they have ends, and all of those exert a different influence on what we do and how we do it. And how do you think people could approach this in looking at their day and and when they make those decisions? You know, I, I, uh, I'm just going to go back to my, you know, previous role as being a seller. And it would be like, you know, when do you send that email after you've met with someone? Right. And, and and even the tone, which is something else you're very uh, honed in on, right. And how you begin a message or an email, et cetera, has a lot Mm -hmm. to do with how successful it may be and being received right. in the way it was intended. And so as you know, uh, someone who's listening to this podcast, do they step back and go, do I break up my day? And do I try to analyze, you know, when I'm going to perform best and do certain things? What, what would you suggest? I would say, yes, you do that. And here are the guidelines for that. And fortunately, the guidelines that derive from the science are pretty straightforward. And, and it's this. So most of us move through the day in three stages, peak, a trough, and a recovery. And most of us move through the day in that order, peak, trough, recovery. Now, people who are strong night owls, uh, who have an evening chronotype, as chronobiologists call it, they actually are a little bit more complicated. They tend to move through the day in recovery trough peak. Um, But for 80% of us, uh, our peak is in the morning, our trough is in the early to mid-afternoon, and our recovery is in the the late afternoon. And what the research shows pretty darn clearly is that uh, we're better off doing certain kinds of work at certain times of the day. So let me explain what I mean by that. During our peak, which again, for most of us is the morning, we're better off doing analytic work, work that requires heads down, focus, attention, uh, cognitive energy. So that could be things like looking at your, you know, reviewing data or writing a report or that kind of thing. Um, We're better off doing that kind of work, analytic work during our peak. During the trough, the trough is not good for very much. Uh, A lot of bad stuff happens there. There's a lot of medical errors, there's traffic accidents, um, they, uh, students do worse on standardized tests. Uh, that trough is a real down period, both in terms of our mood and our performance. And what we're better off doing during that period is our administrative work. Uh, things like answering routine emails, uh, filling out uh, certain kinds of expense reports, all that kind of garbage that we end up having to do in the course of a day, we're better off just uh, bunching it into that period. The recovery, which is late afternoon to early evening, That's an interesting period because our mood is better than during the trough, Um, but we're actually less good at the focused work than we are during the peak. 
And that is a pretty interesting combination because it, it means that if we're in a pretty good mood and less inhibited, it's a decent time for brainstorming, iterative kinds of work, uh, what psychologists call insight problems. And so if we you know, just observe our own behavior and, and take some small steps, what we should be doing is trying to do our analytic work during the peak, which again, for most of us is the morning. For night owls, it's the late afternoon and early evening. Do our analytic work during the peak, our administrative work during the trough, and our, and our insight work during the recovery. And what the research shows is that time of day, just simply time of day alone, explains about 20% of the variance in how people perform on workplace tasks. So, um, you know, and, and, and you know, we, we, what we're talking about here in any sort of you know, intervention to try to do a little bit better, there are no guarantees of anything. It's like if you oh, put the right task at the right time, you're going to be a superstar. No, 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 no. But what it shows is that we can actually improve our odds. We can actually um, boost, you know, we can, we can do systematic things to make it more likely that we're going to do great work. And this ends up, this putting the right work at the right time ends up being a relatively easy, straightforward thing we can do as individuals and that bosses should be knocking down doors to allow us to do. And so it, is it possible to go through that peak trough recovery and somehow when you're in trough, uh, recover faster or change the yeah. duration? How it's uh, yeah yeah. Um, th- so there's there's no universal foolproof way to do that, but yeah, I mean one of the best things to arrest some of the down. So, so there's a really another really great question. So there are a couple of things. So first of all, it's like you can't just stop working during the trough. Most of us can't do that. You say, oh wow, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm just not into it. I'm going to leave. Um, that's most of us can't do something like. That like that. So there are other things that we can do. One of the most important things we can do is we can take more breaks and we can take better breaks. Uh, I also write about the science of breaks and as it's emerged, and it's quite fascinating and powerful. Um, it shows that breaks matter much, much more than we realize. And so breaks can be a way to mitigate some of this downturn. So for instance, uh, I mentioned the decline of standardized test scores for students in the afternoon. Uh, one of the things to do to get student test scores back up, the research has found, is just give students a 20 to 30 minute break before they take that test. Uh, another thing that, um, um, you know, another thing we can do is we can just be, just recognize that we're in this trough and, and actually be a little bit more deliberate. So you see in medical settings, um, uh, surgical teams and other kinds of teams doing a very distinct timeout before they do anything. So before they begin a surgical procedure, especially that time of day, they say, okay, stop, take a step back, let's review what we're doing and, and how we're doing it. And so, um, you know, I, I think that one of the most important things here is that we need to just be more conscious of how these forces of time and timing are affecting how we behave. Uh, it happens at the unit of a day. It happens at the unit of a project. It happens at the unit of a lifetime. And, you know, you bring up a great point. There's so much dialogue, especially out of a lot of the things that came out of Davos a few weeks ago around how, you know, the world is changing so quickly. Does our education system have to change? And even that simple little suggestion you gave about, okay, they're going to do a test, like give them a 20 minute break. Maybe it's a espresso yeah. shot and right a nap, <laughs> whatever, it, whatever it is. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it's, it's true. For, it's true for all of us. I mean, there's another example of, you know, one of the things, you know, one of the things you see in, in, in you know, the research in the medical setting is actually quite alarming. So you look at something like uh, anesthesia errors. Anesthesia errors are four times more likely at 
3 p.m. than they are at 9 a.m. Um, uh, hand washing in hospitals uh, de declines dramatically uh, during the afternoons. And one of the things in that second instance, the, this is research led by Katie Milkman at the University of Pennsylvania, is one of the things they have found about that decline in hand washing in the afternoon is that one of the best ways to get that hand washing back up is to give, it's mostly nurses who they study, give these nurses more breaks and give them uh, social breaks, especially. Um, and again, you know, what we know about breaks is really, from the science, is really, really powerful. Like, like uh, we know, how, like the science is telling us very clearly what kind of breaks we should be taking. And so, you know, there's also this big movement in the corporate world beyond education, right, about breaks and then kind of being meditation rooms or nap rooms, you know, whether it's Ariana mm. for Huffington mm. on on Thrive, you know, mm. uh, I work at Salesforce and, you know, in our new tower, we have um, uh, meditation and mindful rooms and, you know, really just trying to give people right. that time to break during maybe that trough, right? Absolutely right. And and I think that, you know, the sales forces of the world and, and other companies are, do, you know, we, we see this pattern all the time. Like you have these, you know, I mean, Salesforce is a great example. Um, uh, Zappos has done some interesting things with nap pods and whatnot. And to, to some people, they're like, oh, my God, that's yeah. so, you know, like, that's so crazy, groovy, yeah. left coast, weird. <laughs> and but that always happens. All right. That always happens with these things like these things start on the edge and move to the mainstream. We see it over and over and over again. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, the horror that many people felt when uh, something like casual Friday, you know, it's like, oh, my God, we we're at an erosion of standards. You're letting people dress however they want. And now it's like everybody's pretty chill about how you dress when you come to work in certain kinds of, you know, many, many kinds of settings, not all. And so that moved in. Even things like, you know, uh, parental leave was considered socialist and crazy and left coast. And now, you know, especially things something like paternity leave, where, you know, the woman has a baby and the dude gets time off, was like going to destroy this country. It's like so weird, so flaky. And these things are following the same trajectory because what we know about breaks and including naps is, is, is that they matter to our performance. They are not a concession. They're not a sign of weakness. They're a sign of strength. That and I and here and here I have Tiffany, the zeal of a sinner who's been reformed, in that I was somebody who never took breaks because I feel I believe that you should just power through, and that is absolutely wrong. And 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 piles and piles of research show how wrong I was, particularly in this dimension, that I always thought that okay, amateurs take breaks and professionals don't take breaks, and it's the exact opposite. Professionals take breaks. Amateurs are the ones who don't take breaks. You see this in the work of Anders Ericsson and his uh, did an important study on deliberate practice of violinists that, vi that, the, that the elite violinists had a particular pattern of, of uh, preparation that, that, that often involved significant and frequent and significant and certain kinds of breaks more than mediocre violinists. You see this with athletes who are very intentional about their breaks. Uh, we need to start thinking about breaks as part of our performance, not a deviation from performance. And, and if you if you think about you know athletes or anybody you just mentioned, you know there must be a way. You know, one of the things you also say is sort of you know when the when the end of the race shows up, right? People start to pick up pace versus you kind of like slow totally. down. Uh, right. Getting towards right. that finish line. Um, and, and I think right. to the point, uh, you know, you and I do, uh, you probably do it way more than me, but we do a lot of speeches. 
And, you know, and as I was reading your book, it was interesting that I go, God, that, you know, there's times where I'm just like, wow, I am flat. You know, it's, it, it, it must be during that trough time, right? Versus the peak time, you know, yeah. if I'm in the morning or if I'm at after lunch or if I'm in the afternoon, you know, how, does that have some bearing on how I feel and how I feel obviously projects itself it on how everybody does. else feels, right? So now I need to be smart and say, I'm going in the morning. <laughs> like, like I, Yeah, but also Tiffany, I mean, when you can't control that, I mean, there are some things that you can do, you know? So for instance, if you have to give a speech at you know two in the afternoon, which is not an ideal time to do that. I mean, for yourself, you know, literally, like go out and take a walk for ten minutes before you go do that. I mean, that'll be that will be that will be that will be that will be helpful to you. Um, you know, again, just what we know about breaks is that you know there's a whole set of principles here. One is that something is better than nothing. So even a, a short micro break is better than not taking a break. We know that you're better off moving than being stationary. So walking around is better than being stationary. We know that some really impressive research on how much nature being outside, seeing greenery can be restorative. So we know that, you know, outside beats inside. Uh, there's a lot of interesting research on the importance of social breaks. Uh, so even for introverts, so taking a break with someone who you've chosen uh, is, can be restorative. And then, um, and even the importance of full detachment during your during your break. So don't talk about some work crisis or don't bring your phone with you. And if we do those kinds of things, you can mitigate some of the downdraft of the of the trough. So again, if you have that two hour two o'clock speech, you know, uh, be, you know, before you go on, go take a, a you know a ten or fifteen minute walk. Take a ten minute walk outside without your phone, and and um, that can be extremely useful. So I was reading this really fascinating article the other day about speech, giving speeches, you know, now that we've just been talking about this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that in the last probably 30 days, a speech everyone got all riled up about was the one Oprah gave at the uh, Golden Globes. And and people were saying, sure. you know, it wasn't so much just the masterful oration that she gave and the her craft of telling a story, but some were saying it was... Yeah when she gave it. And I don't mean time of day, sure. but when in the temperature of culture that she gave it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, when you think back on that, it it's kind of a combination of all kinds of things, right? Because if now if I go through your three stages, at the time of day that that was being given, most people in the audience were probably in the recovery phase, which means that they were yeah. in that yeah. insight, you know, I'm brain, I'm open. Right. I'm not my, I'm not taxed on. I'm not, you know, in the peak and I'm not sort of sitting in my trough. So everybody right. was more open to listen to something like that. And then the temperature of just kind of what's been going on socially. Uh, would you agree? Yeah. I mean, I think that that. Um, uh, I, yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said for understanding tempo as a, I mean, Oprah has a good job of that as a public figure that events unfold. They have a certain pace, a certain rhythm, a certain tempo. And if you come in with your solo at the right time, it can be really powerful. And I think that's what she did. I think that's what she did in that speech. Um, that's a harder one to do systematically, I think. Um, and, you know, some of it is also a combination of her stature and also that particular moment. Um, and but but there's no question that, you know, this principle of, of the opportune moment is extraordinarily 
extraordinarily important. Yeah, and I think it was, t- you know, timing back to it, right? I think it, people wouldn't yeah. have been open to hear it two years ago, right? Or, no way. Right? No way. Yeah. And, and so that's why I think the when is not only, you know, as you think internally about your own when, like when to do something in your day, but, yeah. but also I'd be curious, right? Stringing that to how you, how someone receives your when, you know what I mean? Oh, sure. No, there's no question about that. And that's actually really important. There's some good research on that as well. I mean, a lot of times, and this goes to some of the, you know, there's some, there's some, this I think has relevance for all your sales listeners out there is that um, there's some interesting evidence. So you have to think about how do human beings make decisions? And one of the ways that human beings make decisions oftentimes is they have, you know, a default decision. And when you're on the receiving, when you're a prospect, your default decision when someone comes in to talk to you is no, right? And our default decision for many things is no. You go in to ask your boss for a raise, her default decision is going to be no. So when are people more likely to overcome the default? And there's some interesting research out of Israel and the way that parole judges operate and some other research in this realm that suggests that people are more likely to overcome the, the default, give you a fair hearing in the, early in the day and immediately after breaks. And so if and so those end up being seemingly pretty opportune times for um, for making those kinds of pitches. And what a great segue for me to talk about to sell as human, because I wouldn't let you possibly get on and off this podcast without talking about that book. Uh, if you don't mind that, I, that I that pivot for for a moment. But, you know, often people will say, oh, you know, what do you think, Tiffany? You know, I'm. I run a team of engineers or I run a team of uh, customer service people or marketing or, you know, I'm in finance and, you know, at the CEO or whomever is saying, you know, we're all in the sales job. Um, and I'd love to hear your opinion on when you were thinking about to sell as human, what you really meant at the core of that, because I'm guessing you didn't mean everybody carrying a quota is human. <laughs> I'm guessing nah. that's not what you meant. No, no, no. And I don't think the human condition is to carry a quota, but I do think that the human condition is to persuade, influence, convince, cajole. And forget about, let's, let's go to something less exalted than, you know, what are our, you know, what is the nature of humankind and what are the evolutionary pressures that are pushing us to do this or, or that? If you just look at the ground truth of what people do on the job, uh, what you find is that people, any job, spend an enormous amount of time on their job doing something that's kind of sort of like sales. They're persuading, they're influencing, they're convincing. Uh, and it's an enormous part of what we do. And, uh, and it's something that human beings have always done. It's become much more prominent in our jobs than ever before. We're doing it on a remade landscape where the seller of anything, an idea, a product, a service, a change plan, doesn't have a monopoly on the, on the information. And you know, persuading others is one of the most fundamental things that we do. So I, I and I and I think that in today's landscape, where both buyer and seller have lots of information, that the best way to be effective is to be um, a better human being. And that's why I think that right now, uh, selling the the strategic and moral thing to do is to sell like a human being. And so, with that, why do you think yes, you're so deep in academia, you know, and you do so much, why do you think that that's something, especially in the MBA class, we're sort of preparing the leaders of the future and they don't spend a whole lot of time on that. They spend almost no time I was on being, that. I was I mean, being it's polite. Ridiculous. <laughs> I was being polite. <laughs> yeah, no, you are. No, but, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be impolite here. I mean, if you look at, especially the elite MBA programs, 
they very rarely have courses in sales. Every once in a while, they'll have a course in sales management, but not in actually doing that. And I think it's a huge, I think it's a huge mistake. Um, for whatever reason, the conventional elite business world really looks down on the sales function. And that's just absurd to me because like, those are the people keeping your company in business. And so, you know, I think that, 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 um, that MBA program should require a course in sales, that it should be part of people's, you know, along with finance and uh, marketing and organizational behavior, that there should be a course in sales. It's, it's hugely important to, to, uh, to what we do. And you know what, I mean, as you know, Tiffany, this always happens in MBA programs. You know, you see it at, at MBA reunions where, um, you know, someone will come back 25 years, 20 years after graduating from an MBA program. And they, and they all say, oh, man, I really wish I would have paid more attention to the soft stuff, which I hate that phrase, soft stuff. But uh, I wish I would have paid more because, like, there are all these people I have to deal with. It's not all simply who can do the best Excel spreadsheet. Like, I got to deal with these human beings and I got to persuade them and I got to get them to do stuff. And like, ah, I wish I would have known this. And, you know, I, I'm telling you right now, folks, uh, the soft stuff is the important stuff. And at the top of that list is the ability to sell. You heard it here on this podcast. Well, thank you. From your from your lips to everybody's ears. <laughs> because, yeah, you know, when I go in, I'll speak at Wharton or USC or, you know, University of Texas. Where, and it's like, we're going to have somebody come in and talk about sales. And what's interesting is, you know, they're all trying to find their way in the career. Like, oh, I want to go into marketing or I want to go into finance. You know, they're trying to find their way. And now you're hearing more and more, uh, you know, them saying, well, I want to get into sales. But I almost feel like, the fact that they don't understand the soft stuff is important because they haven't actually, many of them, they haven't actually worked yet, right? They've come out of college, gone right into the MBA. They haven't actually yeah. seen that the quote unquote soft stuff is important, like yeah. working in a team, collaborating. It isn't always about Absolutely. the best, right? So they don't even know what to ask in class. They're just sort of in learn mode, uh, right. not do mode. And so maybe there's something there that... Uh, I didn't go back for my MBA. Uh, I thought about it when I was sort of like in my late 30s, early 40s, like, you know, okay, if I really want to double down, I should go back to my MBA. So I took an executive MBA. Uh, mm. And at the end of the, at, at Wharton, and at the end of that, I was like, yeah, I don't want to go back for my MBA. <laughs> but but I, I think it's just because I'm not a book learner. I'm a listen visual learner. So it wasn't a good uh -huh. combination for me. Plus, I also thought they spent no time in sort of my core function, which was kind of on the sales side, right? So I mean, they should, they should just make MBA, they should just make MBA students, you know, go out and sell something, you know, like give everybody uh, 25 boxes of Girl Scout cookies and go out and sell. Great idea. Great idea. Because I think people don't actually understand, as you said, it, it is really a day to day, you know, getting your kids to take out the trash, negotiating with right. someone, you know, trying to get your parents to let you stay out till midnight. I mean, you're constantly right, right trying to influence and convince. And, uh, and I'd go back to your your now your new book, right? When it's the same thing, right? So when you approach somebody to try to convince them or uh, get them to do something in a sales mode or not, right? It just in that influence mode uh, is going to have bearing. So you need both sides of it. It's the when, it's also the how you do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Both sides. Well, this has been fantastic. And I'm going to end this and wrap this uh, with uh, two last questions. So the one I like to ask is if you, because you get to meet so many fascinating and wonderful people in your in your travels and and in what you do every day, you know, if you could have dinner with a couple of people, 
alive or 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 dead uh who would you pick hmm hmm um is it a group dinner or one-on-one -on -one? No, group dinner like you know so it could be the combination might be fun <laughs> yeah yeah um i mean truly um i mean among the people who i'd like to have dinner with would be i mean one of the first people that comes to mind is harriet tubman uh, of underground, uh, the Underground Railroad uh, fame, just like somebody in that time, a woman, African-American woman at that time doing something so incredibly creative and courageous and just mind-boggling to me. Um, so I would like to do that. Um, I wouldn't mind having a conversation with William Shakespeare just to see how surprised he was that people are still reading his stuff centuries later. Um, I also, you know, you know, I, I think that the three of the most influential people um, in history are, are people like Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha. I mean, that would be an awesome dinner. Oh like yeah. Get a booth for four. Get a booth for four at Denny's. Me, <laughs> Buddha, Jesus, and Muhammad. And then the book would be called, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, there you go. There you go. It would be a great book, actually. Yes. It, it's uh, it's uh, it, when I asked uh, Roger Martin this question and I said, you know, how did you kind of come up with it? And he's like, it's just it's really all about what Gandhi said. So, you know, the, the ah. two of you, it would be you and he, he and Gandhi, you and Jesus, Muhammad and Buddha. That's be an awesome, yeah. awesome dinner. Well, that or, or we or we could get a bigger table and and. Uh, Gandhi and Roger could join us. There you go. There you go. All right. And then the last one is, you know, kind of what's next? What's next for people who are looking to really step up the game, step up their personal game, their company's performance? Uh, you know, you are so deep in the research. What would be the one or two little nuggets you give them for their Monday morning, uh, you know, when they're right in the peak on a Monday morning starting their next week? You know, I mean, I think that there's, there is, um, there, there are different there are different ways at that. I mean, I, and I hate I, I hate to continue to fall back on this hideous notion of hard and soft, but I'll do it anyway for convenience. So the soft stuff. Oh, well, let me do the hard stuff. Um, I, I think that one of the biggest things that that people have to reckon with going forward is what are you going to be able to do that will augment machine intelligence. Um, I think in many ways the whole world of artificial intelligence, machine learning, big, big data has been has been overhyped in some way. But I think in other ways it's been underhyped, and you know, and so if if you're out there in your 20s or 30s or 40s, um, maybe even someone like me who's in their 50s, I think you have to think hard about you know what skills do you have that that can supplement the incredible things that machines are going to do. And I think there's plenty of stuff like that: asking the right questions, putting the pieces together. Um, I think all that is is super important. The other advice that I would give the soft, quote unquote, softer stuff would be a few things like. Um, you know, just in your interactions with people. Um, one thing that I've tried to do, and I've changed on this, Tiffany, is to assume positive intent. I think a lot of times we assume people have negative intent, and I don't think they really do all that often. And so, but if you go in there and say people have negative intent and have to disprove that to show they have positive intent, I think that's a barrier to getting good work done or, or relationships. So I don't believe that everybody has positive intent, but I think if that's your starting assumption, you'll be better off. Uh, I think there's also something uh, to be said for just a, a broader ethic in general of generosity and kindness. I, I think it's the right thing to do, but I also think it's advantageous in the long run. Um, so kindness and generosity. And then, I mean, I hate to, you know, I mean, this is going to sound a little old fashioned and puritanical, but I'm a big believer in just showing up and doing the work. Like 
people who show up and do the work are going to be fine. Um, it's just the people who are always posturing, always gaming, always like looking for an angle that doesn't work in the long run. So, um, so assume positive intent and uh, assume positive intent, be as kind and generous as you can and show up and do the work. I think that's a pretty good recipe. That is a fantastic way to end this podcast. Dan, I couldn't thank you enough for spending this wonderful half hour with us. I hope that you have had as much fun as I have. Uh, it's always a pleasure to, to speak with you, and I appreciate everything you've done for me, and I hope uh, you have a great rest of your day. But thank you so much for joining me today on the What's Next podcast. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. I've enjoyed it. I must say that was absolutely fantastic. I am a huge fan of Dan Pink and always have been, but that podcast I thought was great. My favorite part, and I'm sure you'll all guess, was when he says, sales are the people that keep your company in business. I want to put that in lights. Love it. Love that he said it. But more importantly, I think it gives us an opportunity to step back and pause and really think about when we choose to make big decisions in our lives, big decisions in business, when we choose to do things throughout the day, whether it's in your peak time, whether it's in your trough time, or whether it's in your recovery time. Time of day matters, but more importantly, and what I really loved was breaks matter. You know, he actually takes 10 minutes uh, throughout the day and puts breaks on his calendar and gets steps away and takes that break. We all need to just make sure take a pause so that we can be our best selves and show up for our people, for our customers, and for our loved ones. With that, I want to thank you for joining me today on What's Next. Please subscribe, leave a bit of feedback if you enjoyed it, and I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing from you again soon. Thanks and have a great day.